They might be giants that have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This happens to pay for with somebody else's money. Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote, Volume 2. This is now Season 3, Episode 1 of the reboot and uh, I just have a few updates for you this week Uh, uh, we were off last week thank you for allowing me to have that time off and we are back now so let's jump in with just the facts all right lots to go over today Rudy Giuliani's communications director has resigned from her position ending a nearly two-year stint as the former New York City mayor faces mounting legal woes to say the least. That's like an understatement of the year. Christiane Allen was her name. She worked at Giuliani Communications LLC since December 2019, said in a statement Monday she is proud of the accomplishments we've achieved, <laughs> Okay, and she touted her role in launching Giuliani's podcast. Oh, congratulations, Christiane. Uh, Allen says she's leaving to join an unnamed rising tech startup. Yeah, it's called Get the Fuck Out of Rudy Giuliani Land. That's the name of that new startup that she's joining. Her exit comes as Giuliani faces a raft of legal problems, including a federal investigation into his foreign lobbying work, possible civil liability related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, and the suspension of his law license. Uh, Allen will be replaced by Todd Shapiro of Shapiro Associates in New York who has a death wish, apparently. He's been working with Giuliani for the past six months. Quote, we are experts in crisis management. (laughs) We've been doing this for over 25 years. Oh, good. And then uh, Todd says, uh, the mayor's going to be fine. The mayor. Shapiro told CNN Monday morning that he is uh, at, that he plans to use the 20th anniversary of 9-11 to remind people of the embattled former mayor's role in helping the city in the wake of the terrorist attack, even though he did more harm than good. All right, quote, he says, I am out there to get the positive and wonderful things that Giuliani is doing today. Wow, good luck with that, Todd. Uh, The ex-personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, of former President Trump, has been under investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York since early 2019. He's not been charged. He denies wrongdoing. Prosecutors are looking into whether Giuliani violated foreign lobbying laws by operating on behalf of Ukrainian officials when he sought the ouster of then-U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, while urging Ukraine to investigate Trump's 2020 political rival, then-Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden, and his son Hunter. So that's Southern District. 
U.S. law requires anyone lobbying on behalf of a foreign uh, government or official to register as a foreign agent. Failing to do so is a violation, as we now know. In April, federal agents executed search warrants at Giuliani's Manhattan apartment and Park Avenue office, seizing 18 electronic devices. Prosecutors also disclosed that they have covertly searched Giuliani's iCloud account in 2019, and an independent review of the documents taken during the searches is now underway to determine whether any are subject to attorney-client privilege. And left out of this article, but as you know, because you listen to me, that special master is named Barbara Jones. She is the same special master that was used in the Cohen case, who was also raided in the month of April, but pled guilty in August. We are past August now, so just wanted to give you a little bit of a timeline there, but I imagine... Rudy's got a lot more documents than Cohen. Giuliani, also, you know, with regarding Giuliani's iCloud account, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about Hunter Biden's laptop because that's going to be coming up in the news as well. Um, So, you know, there could be a lot of information that was, you know, um, that they got in that in the seizure of all those documents, because I believe that the Hunter Biden thing was an op. Uh, as as I'm sure you do, too. Uh, but anyway, that's what's going on. Special Master Giuliani is also facing a major defamation lawsuit from Dominion, seeking billions of dollars in damages, claiming it was helped by the un, or harmed, excuse me, by the unfounded claims of election fraud made by Rudy Giuliani. The company provides election equipment used by more than 40 percent of U.S. voters. It has repeatedly denied all allegations of election fraud. Giuliani has said Dominion's lawsuit is meant to quiet him. When the suit was filed in January, he claimed it was another act of intimidation by a hate-filled left-wing, by the hate-filled left-wing, to wipe out and censor the exercise of free speech, as well as the ability of lawyers to defend their clients vigorously. Rudy knows, and knows better than anyone, that defamation is not free speech. Additionally, earlier this summer, Washington, D.C. and New York suspended his law license for pushing election lies because and we've talked about this too right they didn't do an investigation and decide to suspend him they started an investigation into disbarment or possible suspension and after like like a couple of minutes they said wow there is so much bad here they stopped their little investigation big investigation excuse me i should say they stopped their investigation to come out and say we have to temporarily while we can, while we do this investigation, we have to temporarily suspend your law license. It's so bad. This is so bad. And it's going to take so long. We don't want you practicing law in New York. And D.C. followed suit and did the same thing. But that's what's happening. They're still investigating for disbarment and suspension permanent. But right now it's an interim suspension on an emergency basis because he's so bad. That's that's what's happening now. Amid the mounting legal bills, Giuliani has been offering himself up on Cameo for one hundred and ninety nine dollars a video. Interesting. And in more Rudy news, a federal court in Florida has dismissed a defamation lawsuit filed against Twitter by the Delaware computer repairman who briefly captured national attention during the Hunter Biden laptop story. The lawsuit was dismissed with prejudice, meaning it cannot be filed again, and the plaintiff was ordered to pay Twitter's attorney's fees. John Paul Mac Isaac sued Twitter um, in February. He argued that Twitter's decision to lock the New York Post's account while Post staffers attempted to post and disseminate its expose about the Hunter Biden's laptop 
was akin to calling him a hacker because Twitter cited its rationale for the time-limited ban as a violation of Twitter's rules against distribution of hacked material. So this is... Okay. <laughs> what came off Hunter Biden's laptop was hacked, hacked material, right? Uh, if Or it, it was falsified, generated. Either way, it could have been. And so Twitter didn't... You know, they suspended temporarily the New York Post from posting their stories about the Hunter Biden laptop because it violates their terms of service. The Mac repair guy says that's akin to Twitter calling him a hacker. And that's defamation. Quote, further actions taken by defendant Twitter in response to the New York Post story include limiting the distribution of the story by others on its social media platform pursuant to the same policy, thereby spreading the belief among its users including Florida resident users, that the plaintiff is a hacker. In addition to those banning and blocking actions, Twitter issued a series of high-profile tweets about its decision to limit access to the New York Post-Biden laptop article, which was based on interactions Mac Isaac had with Rudy Giuliani's then-attorney, Robert Costello. Quote, according to Mac Isaac, Twitter's explanations notified its users that materials contained in the New York Post article violated its hacked materials policy, thereby spreading the false belief that Mac Isaac is a hacker. As a result of Twitter's conduct, Mac Isaac received threats to his person and property and was forced to close his business. Mac Isaac asserted a single claim of defamation per se, a permutation of the basic defamation tort, which, under Florida law, also requires the alleged defamatory statements in question be of uh, character when considered alone without innuendo, they contain one, charges that a person has committed an infamous crime, or two, has uh, contracted an infectious disease, or three, they carry the statements tending to subject a person to hatred, distrust, ridicule, contempt, disgrace, etc., or to injure a person in his trade or profession. And specifically, Matt claimed that by invoking the hacked materials prohibition in relationship to the Post's story, Twitter, in the court's words, created the belief among members of the community that, one, Isaac committed a crime, two, was subject to hatred, ridicule, contempt, or disgrace, threats of harm, negative business reviews, and three, was injured, uh, his trade or business closed. The court ruled in Twitter's favor and granted their motion to dismiss the case because none of Twitter's explanations identified Mac Isaac. (laughs) Here, not even the Post story explicitly identified the computer repairman. He'd only become the subject of public attention because the expose contained a photograph of his computer repair shop and people later figured out who the owner of the business was. Quote, while the amended complaint alleges that the New York Post published a photo of the repair authorization without blurring the business name, thereby notifying the public where Biden had dropped off his laptop, the explanations do not include the subject photo, nor do the explanations mention Mac Isaac, the Mac shop, or provide any other descriptive information identifying Mac Isaac as a purported hacker. Mac Isaac himself conceded the points ultimately used to defeat his lawsuit by arguing that Twitter's explanation for the ban should not be evaluated in a vacuum, and extrinsic evidence such as the New York Post article should be considered in order to show that the explanations were referring to Mac Isaac as a hacker. But the court rejected that because Florida law rejects the admissibility of extrinsic evidence in defamation per se lawsuits. So his argument was, hey, come on, this is extrinsic. It can't happen in a vacuum. And apparently didn't know that by law you can't file a lawsuit under those circumstances. Thus, because Mac Isaac has asserted a claim of defamation per se, looking outside the four corners of the explanations to show that person defamed his plaintiff, 
would run afoul of the very nature of a per se action. That's uh, Judge Beth Bloom. Twitter also successfully argued for attorney's fees by claiming Mac Isaac's lawsuit was really a strategic lawsuit against public participation, SLAPP, uh, that's S-L-A-P-P, a legal action intended to chill free speech. Courts in the Sunshine State have previously found their homegrown anti-SLAPP statute is a garden-variety fee-shifting provision in which Florida legislature enacted to accomplish a fundamental state policy deterring SLAPP suits. With minimal analysis, the court found that since Mac Isaac's lawsuit was without merit and because it was aimed at Twitter's First Amendment right to moderate its own content, Twitter is entitled to awards of attorney's fees and costs under Florida's anti-slap statute. He would have been better off just keeping his fucking mouth shut. This is technically the second loss for Mac Isaac. And thanks to Colin Kombacher at Law and Crime for that story. <laughs> anyway... Uh, We'll be right back with a story about what we've all been hoping for. After Trump Russia, what we saw after Watergate, a curbing of executive power. It's on the horizon. Stay with us. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So, the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. All right, everybody, welcome back. This next story comes from Charlie Savage at the Times and maybe maybe the most important story of the decade. Uh, as uh, Trump's norm-busting presidency careened through two impeachments, his departure set the stage for lawmakers to impose new limits on executive power, like the period after Watergate and like the period after the Vietnam War. But nearly nine months after Trump has left the White House, the legal rules that govern the presidency have yet to be tightened. Would-be reformers, sensing that the window for change might close soon, are preparing a major push, one that the Biden White House is eyeing warily. House Democrats plan this month to reintroduce a broad package of limits on executive power. The bill, a refinement to legislation introduced last year during the presidential campaign for political messaging purposes, will put together many proposals percolating in congressional committees. This bill is expected to cover nearly dozens of issues. Among them, it would make it harder for presidents to bestow pardons in bribery-like contexts and to spend or secretly freeze funds 
contrary to congressional appropriations, which is already a law called the Impoundment Act. Uh, It would speed up lawsuits over congressional subpoenas, and it would strengthen the Constitution's ban on presidents taking emoluments, uh, known as the Protecting Our Democracy Act. The bill will be introduced by Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, who also sponsored its 2020 version. But it represents the work of lawmakers and staff members on multiple committees who've been speaking with the White House for months now. Speaker Pelosi directed them to combine their efforts. Acknowledging that he was, quote, working with my House colleagues to introduce and advance that legislation in the next few weeks, Mr. Schiff said in a statement, framed the bill as a response to Trump's many abuses of executive power. If Congress fails to enact new guardrails, he warned, Trump's conduct would serve as a roadmap for future unscrupulous presidents to abuse their power and defeat the most fundamental of oversight efforts. The White House supports many of the ideas, according to people familiar. They include uh, keeping the statute of limitations from expiring while presidents are in office (laughs) and temporarily shielding uh, them from prosecution by having that, you know, you know, happen. If you win, you win election, the statute of limitation is five years. You're president for four years. They want to enhance whistleblower protections, uh, banning foreign election assistance, tightening limits on whom presidents can appoint to temporarily fill vacant positions that normally require Senate confirmation. You know, shit like that. Rules that people used to follow that need teeth. And I have a feeling as I'm reading this today, I like I feel like warm a warm spot in my heart for Richard Painter because this is his jam, right? Uh, quote here, the prior administration's routine abuse of power and violation of longstanding norms pose a deep threat to our democracy. That's Chris Meager, a White House spokesman. We strongly support efforts to restore guardrails and breathe life back into those longstanding norms. We're working with Congress to do that, and we're also building that commitment into every single thing this administration does. But the White House has also expressed skepticism and objected to some of the proposals as going too far and intruding on the president's constitutional prerogatives. On clemency, for example, the White House supports making clearer that a pardon can count as a thing of value in an illegal bribery scheme and that presidents cannot pardon themselves. But the White House is uncomfortable with a related proposal to require disclosing to uh, Congress internal White House communications and Justice Department cases files about clemency recipients. Administration officials are also said to be concerned about proposals to give Congress logs of White House interaction with the Justice Department and to bar presidents from firing inspectors general without good cause. Hmm. And amid the possibility that Republicans may regain control of Congress in 2022, the White House is reportedly skeptical of a proposal that gives lawmakers a clearer right to sue the executive branch to enforce subpoenas. It would also expedite court resolution of such laws and and make lower-ranking officials personally liable for paying any court-ordered fines or refusing to comply with a subpoena, even if it's at the president's direction. Those changes could render obsolete the norm of resolving interbranch disputes over information through compromise and accommodation, with litigation as a rare last resort. Trump flouted that norm, vowing to stonewall all oversight subpoenas and running out the clock in court. It remains unclear whether the final bill will include many of the ideas the White House has raised concerns about. In June, Schiff told MSNBC the House Democrats were getting some pushback from the administration and said he hoped President Biden and his team would see the priority should be ensuring that the system of checks and balances works. Quote, if that means making sure that Congress can do its oversight, that's what needs to happen, Mr. Schiff added. So I hope we get movement from them, but I'm determined to push forward regardless. House Democrats are not the only White House allies urging Biden to accept the new curbs. 
among the outside advocates joining them is Bob Bauer. That's Mr. Biden's personal lawyer. Last year, Mr. Bauer, who was on the White House counsel in the Obama administration, joined with Jack Goldsmith, a senior official at the Bush Justice Department, to write a book proposing dozens of curbs on executive power called After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. This week, the pair formed an organization called Presidential Reform Project. With funding and philanthropic foundations, they are hiring a bipartisan team to lobby Congress. On Wednesday, they sent two letters to Merrick Garland, urging him to take certain steps to protect the Justice Department from politicization and to rescind the three Bush-era memos that take an extreme and defensible view of presidential war powers. Quote, we have the time, but not much time for progress on reform before midterm politics and then the 2024 election cycle make it harder. That's Mr. Bauer. He said it's critically important to move some reforms in the coming months to achieve momentum for this program. And by framing the coming House bill as a rebuke of Trump, Schiff may risk deterring Republicans, especially amid rubblings that Trump may run again in 24. The Senate's filibuster rule means some Republican support would be necessary to pass this bill, as we know. But staff, aides, and advocates say the strategy will be different in the Senate. There, the ideas are likely to be broken up and attached to other bills that, with different casting, are seen as more likely to garner Republican support. Most of the ideas predate the Trump presidency, said Danielle Bryan, the executive director of the Project on Government Oversight, which has sought to improve protections for inspectors general and whistleblowers. Quote, many of these address fissures in our system that have been made more obvious by Trump, but we're long there. I know why Democrats want to frame this as a Trump accountability bill, but we've been pushing for nearly all of these reforms for decades. For example, the proposal to require disclosure to Congress of White House contacts with the Justice Department is salient now because Mr. Trump and his aides pressured prosecutors to investigate his political adversaries and former aides viewed as disloyal and to raise baseless suspicion about the 2020 election. But it echoes a bill that Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa and John Cornyn of Texas voted for. In 2007. And an idea to curb presidential power to declare national emergencies and unlock special standby powers, as Trump did, to spend more taxpayer funds on a border wall than Congress was willing to approve. That echoes legislation introduced in 2019 by Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, with 18 other Republican co-sponsors. Quote, we now have 19 Republicans already signed on to emergency powers reform, said Elizabeth Goteen. She's the director of the Brennan Center for Justice, Liberty, National Security Program. It has broad bipartisan support. We know that. If anything, it's going to be an issue of holding on to Democrats now that Biden is president. As a, as a presidential candidate, Biden said in a survey of executive power, he would sign many types of post-Trump overhauls, but did not endorse new limits on emergency powers, specifically. The push is not limited to Schiff's bill. For example, Mike Lee has teamed up with Senators Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, and Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, on the National Security Powers Act, which would combine new limits on emergency powers with curbs on presidential war powers and arms sales. As part of an annual defense bill last week, the House Armed Services Committee approved a provision to transfer control of the, D the District of Columbia's National Guard from the president to the mayor. And Mr. Trump had deployed the guard against demonstrators during racial justice protests last year and didn't during the insurrection. Adding to the push, the group Protect Democracy has hired a lobbying team led by former Republican Senate aide, um, they don't name him here, uh, to lawmakers in hopes of building bipartisan support. And the time is now. The window is closing. That's Mr. Dayton, a policy advocate with a group who worked for several elected Republicans. 
Many of these ideas have a history of bipartisan support. Progress so far is proof that Congress cares about the power of the legislative branch and the rule of law, but we're going to learn if it cares enough. We'll be following that. Also in the news, we got another 302 Mueller probe dump from Jason Leopold at BuzzFeed News. After comparing what we already knew with the new unredacted parts of the latest release, Zamlan Qureshi uh, found a few new tidbits, but nothing earth-shattering so far. First, we learned that Manafort and Gates actually believed that sharing the polling data with Konstantin Kalimnik was not a problem, even though they knew he was probably a Russian agent. That might be the crux of intent right there, too, right? Too dumb to crime? Although Andrew Weissman told me, and wrote in his book, that they had enough to get Manafort on conspiracy for that, but they opted for the easier tax crimes. And speaking of Andrew Weissman, his last tweet was a retweet of a Daily Beans episode he was on, and that happened on July 9th. He hasn't tweeted since, and I haven't seen him on the news programs. I don't mean to insinuate anything other than I hope he's okay. Maybe he's just teaching. Maybe he's working on an investigation. I have no idea, but it's notable his absence. Anyhow, back to the 302s. We also learned that Manafort thought he could circumvent Farah because he knows Dana Rohrabacher. It says a lot about Dana Rohrabacher. And per Jason Leopold, the State Department and the Treasury weighed in on redactions for this particular release, probably because there were some uh, banks in Cyprus that were unredacted that Manafort was keeping money in and then had another UK bank account he lied to the FBI about. So, anyway, we will be right back with Sabotage and the Fantasy Indictment League. Stay with us. So, Renato, do you still have your own podcast? Yeah, it's complicated. What's so complicated about a podcast? That's the name of the podcast, remember? Oh, will you still be exploring topics that help us understand the week's news? You bet. But we'll have a new name because we're going to be working together to explore complicated issues that are dominating the news. Working together? Yeah, you're hosting it with me, remember? Oh, right. Wait, does that mean our podcast is going to have a steam mop segment? Let's not get carried away. But we'll discuss hot new legal topics. So check out our new episode coming soon to everywhere you get podcasts as well as YouTube. All right, everybody, it's time for Sabotage. Sabotage today. Igor Fruman finally pled guilty to one count in court this week. Uh, he had a hearing scheduled to change his plea a couple weeks ago, but that hearing got moved back two weeks to this week. Now, I thought they needed more time to work out a cooperation agreement, but... There's none at this time. I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss as to why they'd bring him down to one count and plead him out if he wasn't going to offer something in return. Um, Talked to Marcy Wheeler this morning. She's like, well, you know, um, kind of we sort of sussed it out. And what I figured is, you know, it's it's probably easier to plead him out, avoid the trial and take the W. And I, I would imagine you wouldn't want to cooperate against Furtosh because that's what would probably be required uh, it would definitely actually be required because now if i when i think about it if you sit down in your queen for a day proffer session you have to tell them everything you know and that would include 
everything that relates to Dmitry Firtash, who I personally think funded Fraud Guarantee. And that brings us to the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, wait, it's going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey, I'm gonna be indicted! Hold it, they can't. It's gonna be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm gonna be indicted. So, someone was indicted in Matt Gates recently. His name is Stephen M. Alford. Allow me to read a little bit to you from this particular indictment. Between on or about March 16th, 2021, and on or about April 7th, 2021, in the Northern District of Florida and elsewhere. The defendant, so that's March and April of this year, the defendant, Steve, Stephen M. Alford, knowingly and willfully devised and intended to devise a scheme to defraud for obtaining money and property by means of material, false, and fraudulent pretenses, representations, and promises, and for the purpose of executing such a scheme, did cause and attempt to cause a wire communication to be transmitted in interstate commerce. The scheme to defraud. Steve Alford provided person A with a cellular telephone number of DG. And and that's Don Gates, y'all. DG is not Dana Goldberg in this case. That's Don Gates. So Stephen Alford provided person A with a cellular telephone number of DG in order for person A to contact DG to discuss the purported release of RL from captivity in Iran. That is the we know who that is. And purported current federal investigations into a family member of DG, current federal investigations into a family member of Don Gates. Person A sent a text message to Don Gates requesting such a meeting. In the text message, it was conveyed to Don Gates that person A's partner will see to it that family member A, that's Matt Gates, receives a presidential pardon, thus alleviating all his legal issues. Hmm. So, Alfred crafted a letter entitled Project Homecoming for Person A to discuss with DG upon their meeting. And what I don't understand is if this happened in 2021, maybe it was executed in 2021, because how could he promise a pardon from Trump in 2021? Anyway, Steve Alfred entered a, a, crafted a letter called Project Homecoming for Person A to discuss with DG upon their meeting. The Project Homecoming letter conveyed purported facts to an investigation by the FBI for various public corruption and public integrity issues related to family member A. <laughs> a presidential pardon for family member A and the need for $25 million. Hmm. Stephen Alfred falsely represented the Project Homecoming letter that his team had been assured by the president he will strongly consider a pardon or instruct the Department of Justice to terminate any and all investigations involving Matt Gates, should the team be able to secure the release of RL from captivity. So here's the scheme. This guy went to Don Gates and said, give me $25 million. We can get this Iranian uh, hostage out, who's actually, uh, I mean, the reports are, and, and the, the thought is, is that this hostage is actually deceased. But... Give me $25 million, I'll get you a pardon for your son. That's what, this, that's what this indictment is about. And if we scroll all the way to the end, the end, let's see here. Oh, criminal forfeiture. These are just the charging documents. Count two, April 2021, the defendant before or during a search and seizure property of two wit and Apple iPhone 12 Pro Max and its contents by a person authorized to take such. He, he, he destroyed evidence. 
So those are the two counts that he's up on. So that's that's Stephen Alford. So yeah, when Matt Gates said somebody was extorting his dad, he was right, but but it was for to get a pardon for Matt Gates. <laughs> anyway, um, so with that, I will retain a Fruman plea agreement. I think I'm going to keep him on a plea agreement. I I know he's probably just pleading out and won't be cooperating, but I'm gonna I'm gonna keep him on there. Uh, I'm also going to do a Matt Gates indictment. Uh, I'm going to add a superseding Manafort indictment. I'm also going to add a Tom Barrick plea agreement, a Calamari Senior plea agreement, a McConney plea agreement. He's the uh, one with the second set of books at Trump, the Trump Organization, and a superseding Trump org indictment. I'm also drafting Rudy this week. Uh, also, some rando Russian-backed Ukrainians in the Eastern District of New York. And what the hell? Let's draft Ivanka as well. I'll take her for an indictment or a plea agreement at half the points because I don't know which it's going to be. So I'll take half the points and put money on both of those. Money. <laughs> There's no money. Anyway, that is uh, Muller She Wrote for this week. Thank you so much. And out today, we also have the new start of the MSW Book Club series on Mary Trump's book, The Reckoning. Uh, it's Dana and I. We're going to do a six-part series, and then in the seventh episode, uh, we'll have Mary back on to answer your questions if you're a patron. Uh, if you want to get these episodes ad-free, along with ad-free Daily Beans and MSW Book Club and stuff, invites to VIP meet-and-greets and meetups and our weekly Zoom happy hour, anything you're into, um, you can do that by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote, and it's three bucks a month to start. That's best deal in the biz. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Everybody, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill, and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Feds favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA 
As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.